Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 129th episode of the Truth Island podcast. A huge goal for many starting in the 20th century has been to try and create something and scale it up so that it can reach as many people as humanly possible. In the past, this meant starting a burger chain, building a loyal client base, opening up a second location, and then expanding from there. The franchise model has become synonymous with America, where a large corporation opens up chain stores, which look exactly the same, sell the same products, have the same prices, employees wear the same uniform, and essentially create an atmosphere that feels the same anywhere in the country, if not the world. More recently, however, the desire to scale up has not just been the model in, corporate, in the corporate world, but for us as individuals. The number of people releasing content on YouTube or TikTok has skyrocketed in the past number of years, with people hoping to capture a wide net of subscribers. Even those not looking to make a career out of this, overwhelmingly, an increasing number of young people have grown discontent with simply the friends they may have randomly encountered in high school and college, and are now wishing to branch out and make others laugh, share opinions, or even personal drama on a much broader scale, just like our national franchises. While it is refreshing that people can now share their lives and life stories with people they may not otherwise have met, there is a very dark side to all of this. One of the things that often plagues most franchises as they get larger is the problem of quality control. If you operate one burger joint, it's really easy to make sure that you are using the finest ingredients, hiring the best people, keeping your stores clean, and creating a personal connection with your customers. However, as a company begins to expand, that personalized touch begins to fade. Thinking about this on the human scale, the way you might tell a story with some of your closest friends might be radically different than that of 2 million subscribers. Art, such as films, in many ways also suffer greatly as the need to break into foreign markets sometimes forces directors to limit dialogue, produce more action scenes, and remove specific cultural references in order to appeal to as many people as humanly possible. While it might be beautiful that a Charlie Chaplin film can be universally enjoyed, must everything that is now produced in this world always try and attract the largest number of fish? Or is it ever okay to keep things small and unique? Helping me to decide to scale up or down, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, as an actor, would you rather star in a film that was loved intimately by a specific group of people, or do you want to be the next Charlie Chaplin? I struggle with this question. I think the real answer for me personally would be a quality, uh, a quality marking, because at the end of the day, you take your work home with you on some level. So it would be a very nagging presence in my mind if I didn't feel proud of what I was working on and what I built and what, how that can be shared and how that affects others. Now, Charlie Chaplin did a lot of that, but let's put him into the kind of like factory mundane description of, of his movie makings, despite how much impact he actually had. So let's say, you know, he was just mass producing garbage. 
if I had to compare that between a cult classic where people would watch my movie and say, wow, that was one of the best performances. It's so tough because at the same time, if you were in the cult classic and never got a second picture, you're, you're not able to help more people. You're only able to help that amount of people. The middle way between that is really the only answer for as an actor to be able to get the right amount of work to help the right amount of people. I mean, you look at The Rock's Instagram, right? Every so often he posts something to some kid who reaches out to him and says, you're my hero, I'm on my dying day. I just wanna say thank you so much for your pictures. He wouldn't be able to do that if he didn't make 12, 15, 20 films. I wanna, I agree with you. And this is a really like difficult subject for me to breach. So I think in many respects, we have alienated ourselves from the intimacy of our work, which has its positives and has its negatives. I wanna talk about what you first said, that you ultimately have to live with yourself. I am of the belief that when we are completely alone with ourselves, sitting at home in our underwear, what have you, we are our true selves, right? Like we, no one is watching, we do what we want, we think what we want, we believe what we want. As soon as a second person enters that room, our behavior alters or changes in some way, unless you're a complete sociopath. Another person enters that room, our behavior changes. So as we keep stacking on people, our behavior changes and maybe for good cause, like maybe having other people around us brings out the best in us and makes us filter our behavior just a little bit more. And it's, it could be a negative thing. It could be a positive thing. I think as an artist though, there is art that you may solely create for yourself. Just, just, I love this and no one will ever love it. And that's totally fine. I also think there is a genre of art that can be loved by just a very few select group of people that is also very beautiful and can still speak to the true essence of who you are. You might make a few compromises to keep those small number of people happy, but you can ultimately live with yourself and be happy as an artist. And I, I think the word like selling out is, is very true. Like I, I, I do feel like like when you compromise your vision, you feel as if you've betrayed yourself in some way. And, you know, again, like I said, I don't think that The Rock has betrayed his vision. I don't know what he is as a human being, or I don't know what his deeper feeling is. But I feel like a lot of creations of the 20th century and the 21st century have in some ways betrayed what it is that they originally were. And the, the creators of that kind of have to live with that. And that's really hitting some pretty deep conflictual conversations I've had with myself, I would really bring it back to what is art. It's not an objective thing anymore. And in order to be in the business of art, you have to kind of find the Venn between commercial mobility and a higher ideal. And this is at the heart of this, the struggle for every single artist is how do I blend the two without compromising the purity of the idea in the first place? It's exploitation in a way when you start adding the commercial element to it, but it comes hand in hand. The, the only way to have longevity is to have people watch what you make or purchase what you make or feel from what you make. So the more eyeballs, the more touch points, the more vectoring patterns between other human beings and their experience. That is a compounding element towards the delivery of your art. Perfect example, perfect example, Van Gogh. No one watched 
no one bought Van Gogh's paintings. No one even really knew he existed until he passed away. <laughs> I know. Tragic, right? <laughs> so his entire life is, I suck. No one likes my art. What's the point? I'm going to do it for me anyway. And there's a beauty in that too. You can even use that as an argument for the opposite side of this, right? Where maybe you don't need the commercial element. I get it. But the man died with syphilis in his brain after cutting off his ear. Like, if you think that's not, like, he didn't have a pretty life. So what is your art? How, how much solace mm. is there in your art? Is your art there to be your inner citadel, to bring it back to a stoic ideal? Or is it something that you really reap the benefits from by sharing and mm. having other people to take experiences from that? I think that's a really good point. And I think Van Gogh was a really miserable um, person. And I think most authors or writers that don't receive at least some level of fame in their lifetime do end up dying miserable. They might say, oh, well, I'll be loved in posterity. And okay, yeah, you know, that might be true, um, which was the case with Van Gogh, but he's dead. He can't really see that or appreciate it or see the impact of what his art created or, or, or what he sent there into the greater world. If we, if we kind of look at the inverse of that, when you make a film, for example, that is very, very specific. Now, I'm not saying so specific that it's just for you. It can actually touch a certain group of people in such a profound way, like in such a pronounced way that like it, 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 it shakes the foundation of who they are. I actually think that art has that power to actually just shake the foundation of who you are if, if, if it really speaks to a specific group of people. And as you start to multiply, as you start to expand, you might, you know, like, like Charlie Chaplin, you might be able to like hit many different people. You know, again, Charlie Chaplin is wonderful for the foreign markets because there's no dialogue in any of his films. It's just him bumping into things and running away from things. So anyone anywhere on the face of the earth could appreciate that. But when we watch a Charlie Chaplin film, I don't know if it necessarily speaks to someone's soul. Like, I, I don't know if it shakes the foundation of who it is that they are. Now, everyone might be able to enjoy it, but I don't know if, if, if we look at that kind of film the same way we look at The Godfather or we look at Taxi Driver um, that, that really speak to a certain class of people's soul and really shake the foundations of who they are. And I hear you. I hear you. You don't want to have a, a, a tragic life like a Van Gogh. But at the same time, I think that we're, we're starting to move a little bit too much in the other direction where we're not even bothering to tap into people's like higher consciousness. We're definitely moving in the wrong direction. I 100% agree with that. But I will push back on Charlie Chaplin not stirring the soul um, because he really is one of the greatest artists of all time. And his work has such a deep, profound narrative. But for the sake of the conversation, I'm just going to say He's the Marvel of the past, right? We'll, we'll sure. just call him the commercial Marvel because his, his monologue from the great dictator is still considered one of the greatest speeches ever. So cool. Let's, let's put him into that box, right? And use him as just a commercialized movie factory. Um, let's use the Marvel. How about we use the actual Marvel Let's movies. use the Marvel, yeah. yeah okay, we'll, cool. use, we'll use like the crazy, the, the third iteration of Spider-Man or whatever. And it's like, okay, right. we need this explosion. We need to have um, a diverse set of characters here. You know, like... Basically, every decision that's being put into these Marvel movies is how can we expand to the you know maximum amount of foreign markets as humanly possible. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. And there is a genius to that, right? But it doesn't necessarily stir 
my soul. Like it doesn't make me think about thinking. It doesn't make me think about feeling. I'm just kind of on autopilot, just on the, the roller coaster that is the movie. And, you know, some people really love that and respond to that. But for me personally, it's more the quiet moments like Nosferatu coming out from the darkness and like how that makes me think mm-hmm. or watching the sound of silence on screen during Inglorious Bastards and the tense moments in between and feeling the, the, the screaming that's going on in my body on the tension of what's happening. Those are the things that really stir me, that make me think. Seeing the, the, the girl in the, red, in the red dress, right? And Schindler's List. Sure. Or the meaning behind war and the barbarism and human nature. And when you're storming the beaches of Normandy, these are the things that really make me think. And this is, I think, the purpose of art is where it starts adding a different dimension towards the perspective of what you had beforehand and how it helps you basically 3D map problems because you're, you're being taken on somebody's perspective and you're there for the entire experiential journey towards their conclusion. Your direction, your journey to that conclusion would be coming in from a different angle. So now you can almost triangulate the problem from different perspectives because it's not just yours. Mm-hmm. So the end point should be how you've learned a dimensionality towards a problem, a further empathy towards a problem, a new belief system from a, a problem that might shake and stir your soul. That to me is art. I see that in a painting. I see that. I see the anger in the brushstrokes, right? I see the texture. I, I see. I see the shadow. You know, I see the grandiose nature. I see the ego. I mm-hmm. see the, the the you know the the underlying themes and it's a shame that we've kind of veered from the Renaissance humanism element where it's just that. Right. And that was adored. Like the, the Ven was so perfectly eclipsed. Like there was no, there wasn't much compromise behind the higher vision compared to today. Okay. Listening to what you just said, there's one word that really just came at my mind just listening to you, and that's the word subtlety. And I, especially when you said, uh, you know, Schindler's List, uh, the girl in the red dress, subtlety. I think that art of the past, films of the past, were more dangerous and more risky with subtlety. Like the the director of Schindler's List was like, we're going to put this girl in a red dress. We're not going to explicitly say what her purpose is. We're not going to explicitly make it overt um, that, you know, this is a a, a metaphor for blah, blah, blah. We're going to just allow some vagueness around this. We're going to allow the audience to kind of color it in the way they want to color it in. And there'll be interpretations and kind of like the, you know, ending to the Sopranos, so to speak, right? Just like, let's leave it vague. And I think what's happening now is that our desire for scale makes us fearful of leaving people out, right? So there may, like if we were making Schindler's List today, we may not have a girl in a red dress because we'd be like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Some people are going to interpret this as being an artsy fartsy movie. They're going to feel dumb. They're going to feel left out. They're going to feel like this movie's not for them. So in a way, we, we kind of take less risks. We dive less deeply into this like psychological discovery of ourselves or discovery of art in order to appease everyone and make sure that no one is feeling left out. And that, that I think, is 
at the heart of this matter. I think that's like the real danger here is that we're losing the art by making everything inclusive. I really think it just comes down to a practical nature. It's like you have these, the whole supply chain of art is interesting, right? Because the original idea is, uh, is really just the genesis of this specific inspiration that drops down from the Akashic records or whatever you would call that, right? <laughs> to be all woo woo, um, you know, just drops into your head and then you have this idea and then you somehow spit it out into some form or material. Mm. And then you have to take it to somebody to get it supported. Yeah. And that's where it starts to get weird because that person's saying, okay, well, what's in it for me? How, how do I get something out of this? And it's that kind of like profit share supply chain that turns it into a commercial venture. It, it would be different. This is, this is the beauty of the theater. And this is why the theater can't die, right? Because the theater is exactly that. The theater is so not focused on the commercial aspect yes, that you yes. have that freedom. Poetry is the same way. Podcasting is the same way. It doesn't take much to make it. The sky's the limit. And it's about the quality of the product. Whereas I honestly think filmmaking, and I'm a filmmaker, as much as I love it, is so much more expensive to do and sure. to get done that it's like you have to start looking at ROIs a little bit more. And that's where we are now, mm. where the numbers have to make sense. And so it's like, no, widen the scope, widen the scope, make it more accessible, make it more inclusive, like you're saying, because all of those, all of the feet that are coming through aren't just buying tickets, they're buying popcorn. They're pushing our commercial spaces that have MGM Grand on the outside. You know, maybe we can save the Arclight Theater if we just get 450 people in there. So there's this huge bloated machine where, you know, if you were to put, to, to bring it to like a Mancala expression, I don't know if you've ever played that game where you have to move the beads into one side of the board. Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. To put it on the scales of justice, right? Each grain of sand, you need to put it into the very thing that's weighting down the enterprise in the first place, which is this bloated necessity for success. But it's not the art. It's not the art because people don't, I, I, I hate to say it, people don't put enough into the art for it to just survive on its own laurels. It has to, it has to have partnerships. Now, I like, I, I really am glad you brought that stuff up because you're absolutely right. I, I think that making a movie is a highly risky venture, right? Like these movies are getting millions and millions and millions pumped into them. And if you write a book, like I find that there's a lot more artistic freedom and truth in books because books are really easy to make, right? You just sit down behind Microsoft Word and you start typing. So you can write whatever the hell it is that you want. And it, it's less of a gamble than, you know, a movie that's spent millions of dollars on special effects and stuff. There are a few remedies to, to fix this a little bit. Like I noticed that you can make a lot of artsy films that just are very low budget. I, I think that some stories can be told and they don't really need these like massive CGI grand scale budgets. So I, I think that could be one alternative because if you are making a very low budget film, well, you're not trying to get as many people as humanly possible to watch that film. You're just trying to get enough people to watch the film to offset the budget and then some, if I'm not mistaken, right? So if I'm making a low budget film, okay, everyone needs to get paid. It needs to break even. So you want to break even plus a little bit more on top. So I, I think that could be one remedy is just making things that are much more low budget, but then speak to a much more niche type, type of audience. 
the other thing that I, I want to add to this is let's just take our artist um, who's writing the screenplay and he writes the screenplay. It's all finished. It's all done. It's, it's his baby. He loves it. And then he turns it over to just that first person, that first editor, or even like a best friend that reads it. And the best friend is like, uh, what the hell is this? Like, I, I'm not understanding this. This doesn't, this doesn't make any sense or whatever. Well, there does come a point where you do need to start compromising your vision just for the sake of like bringing, allowing other people to, to actually see what it is that you are creating, right? Because if like, if things are too per personalized, well then the world doesn't really get to enjoy that beauty at all. So I, I think there is a balance here of creating stuff that you're personally proud of, but then understanding that like you wanna you wanna give some kind of contribution back to the to the greater world around you. And, and I think that th that that process is okay. The point in which it gets out of control is when you say we need everybody. Every everyone has a say. Everyone has a voice in this creative process. That's that's where I think the danger lies. Yeah, there has to be some sort of hierarchical structure. Like this is something I feel like the the current era fails to recognize is that, except Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty gets this right, where it's <laughs> like the the compromise of a hierarchical structure sometimes despite those being at the top, um, having some evil doing intentions, sometimes saves the entirety of the organism from, you know, falling on its own sword, killing its own self, mm -hmm. you know, consuming itself. It's like, I hate to admit that, but even in art, you got to do it, right? You got to have one decision maker or a series of few decision makers that people listen to so that the organization of, to get the product completed actually goes through because there's nothing worse than working with a collective that can't get anything done because everyone feels that they need to have an equal share in the in the way that the, the organization should be moving forward it doesn't work yeah it doesn't work it's like it's like being in a summer camp and having 50 voices and everyone you know it's like I don't know what that says about my belief in democracy. Like that's curious <laughs> now that the amount of conversations you and I have had with that. But I guess that's why we have a democratic republic, not, not an actual democracy. Um, I think that, you know, it's the same theory. Like you need some sort of structure just to get it done. Because yeah, because we can't we can't have every single person on the face of the earth creating their own little masterpieces. Because then we would truly have we we wouldn't it would just destroy this it would destroy anything being subjectively beautiful or anything being subjectively bad. Because everyone everyone is their little special artist. Everyone is creating magical paintings and drawings and so forth. So th there does have to be some kind of hierarchy or some kind of means in which we evaluate whether something is noteworthy or whether it kind of, I'm not going to say belongs in the trash pile, but maybe belongs in your private collection. Uh, <laughs> now, one thing that I'm starting to, to notice even about YouTube, and I, I think we can say that to, to produce something on YouTube is probably considerably cheaper than, than making a blockbuster film. But even mm. there, YouTube, when it first came out, was really really special for being unique and mm -hmm. niche free like, yeah the, the, you mm -hmm. know there was this guy called the um the angry video game nerd who would like talk about like old nes video games and and like make fun of them and i was like i was like this is this is perfect this this guy is talking exactly and he had a 
a, a decent a decent following, but not like commercial blockbuster following. And that's what made it so magical is that he was speaking to a specific demographic of people, you know, born in this time frame who grew up playing Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. And he was able to really kind of tailor his jokes to appeal to those people. And that's what made YouTube so wonderful. I'm actually starting to see that each of these individual YouTubers now aren't just satisfied entertaining their particular niche or their particular corner of the woods. The goal is now to conquer everybody. And, 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 and now something, a medium such as YouTube where things, it's not really a money issue, right? It's not like these people are spending that much money to, to enhance their set or whatever. Like a lot of these things could be done on the down low, but there is this, this, this need of like, well, I'll be more powerful if I have more subscribers or if I have more views. Whereas I'm like, well, hold on now. Maybe you were more powerful when you really, really tapped into that specific niche. It's funny you bring that up. Uh, I have a friend going through this who started the gaming channel and, you know, it's been picking up steam. He does it for the love of it. And you hear that. You hear that in voices and in situations. And you can see when people start to sell out too. Yeah. Because it's, it's not genuine. And you have to protect that integrity as an artist of when, when you're doing something for a commercial reason and when you're doing something for genuinely for the art. There is kind of a psychological thing that happens to people when they feel like they have some sort of army of viewers or listeners behind them. I think it makes them a little cray cray. <laughs> it makes them it makes them a little crazy. The same thing with celebrity too, right? It's kind of like this my shit don't stink attitude, or you know, like you're at the helm of some invisible internet army. Right. Screaming charge, and they'll just blindly run in for you, and you're able to just like abuse the human capital feeling behind it. I, I don't know if there's like a biological connection to our, to our nervous system towards mm -hmm. that feeling, but it definitely happens on YouTube where people believe that. I, I would argue that that already is an exploitation of their, of their art. That's no longer art. I think this represents a wonderful spectrum. So I think on one end of the spectrum, we have Van Gogh. I don't give a crap about anyone. I'm going to cut off my ear. I don't, I don't give a crap and I'm going to die a nobody and I'm going to make the art that I want. That's one end of the spectrum. And that art is 100% purely him. When you get to that level where you have all of these subscribers or followers or whatever they call themselves, and you have all of these comments here, what happens is that those comments and those reviews start taking away ownership from the original creator. So those people in the comments will leave like a bad review and be like, well, you know, I, I really would appreciate if you would cover this or, you know, I think you would be best to stop talking about that. I, I think you should do this and do that. And you have all these comments and each comment is stripping away the creation from the creator because they're they're trying to be like, well, I don't want to lose people. I want to make this person happy and this and that. And that's kind of how you destroy art is by mm -hmm. completely just democratizing it, right? You completely democratize art and now now you've destroyed it. So the scale is what actually just ended up destroying. And that, that's, ba that's basically the road to how you get to a Marvel movie, right? Like Marvel, like all of the studios are just following the almighty dollar. So every single piece of criticism now influences how they produce their movie. There is no like, well, I, I just don't care about what that segment of people thinks. We're gonna do it this way. I would say it's one of the four horsemen that can kill art because sometimes it's necessary 
sometimes you need that commercial endeavor. Sometimes that's necessary. It's just like, you know, it's like a store owner who doesn't necessarily want to sell something in his bodega, but in order to keep the lights on, he's got to put it on the shelf. When he sells that, he opens up three separate occasions where he can make the thing he wants to make. I don't want to necessarily put the scarlet letter on Marvel for that. <laughs> um, but I wish people would be able to instead make a movie about the struggles of maybe a Uyghur in China, but that'll never go to market. And so, you know, with that, that in mind, it's like there is a censorship on the art. And so scaling it up, you start getting into those kinds of conversations. And is that right? Where is, where is the free, where's the freedom and creating art and creating story and, and driving those questions? What platform has that anymore? YouTube doesn't. They used to, not anymore. No, exactly. When when the art was about let me speak to my let me speak to my passion or let me speak to my specific niche audience, you did you did have that right bound. But it is getting to that other extreme where we can't talk about really important things or things that really touch us on some kind of other higher level. It's like it's the same thing with books. I, I think that there's a lot of books that touch upon very, very, very sensitive subject matters. Like if you read like a book of Tolstoy, if you read a Dostoevsky, if you read any of these like really heavy pieces of literature, they tap into something that is so important for us to know. But the problem is, is that the message that they have to offer is not necessarily for everyone. That there is there is a segment of the population that will be like, all right, this is too dry, this is too boring. I don't have the patience. I don't have the the interest in really getting to see what this author is. But what happens is that that prof those profound revelations basically get sacrificed on the altar of appeasing everybody. And we we as a species suffer for that. We don't we don't grow in the directions that we should grow. And if you create that art that speaks to that specific audience, well, then that specific audience can then kind of dummy it down or kind of like explain it to others who may, who may not have the patience to understand it. There's this channel on YouTube called Academy of Ideas. And these, these two brothers do such an amazing work reading really, really, really difficult, dense pieces of work. And they're able to kind of just sum up these like very dense pieces of work in 15 to 20 minutes for people who just don't have that time, right? Like I don't, maybe you don't have that time or that patience, but they're able to kind of do that for us. And I think that's important. And what's unfortunate is that it, it would, it would scare me greatly if people said, well, I can't make money doing this. Therefore, I'm just not going right. to do it anymore. Man, I can't tell you how many people I know come to that conclusion we can't just pretend there aren't realities towards money making yeah. and the survival in this world. We can't pretend that that doesn't exist. It, it does. In fact, I would say that the world today doesn't bring that into equation enough. And that's why people just assume that all you need is talent to, to make it. It's like, no, that's not true. There's so many talented people right now working mundane jobs that wish their life could be different, but don't have the ability to do it necessarily. Sure. And, you know, you can say, well, of course they have a choice. Of course it's like, well, okay, if you have a child, what are you going to do? You're going to put them on the altar? No, it's not all right. So 
there's so much compromise. And again, because the dollars flow towards these commercial projects and not towards the actual exploration of art, you get more opportunities to, to do the commercial. It's kind of just where the market is mm. because people don't stand up for, for the art. People don't stand up. And it, this is where I honestly re really respect the French is because they do that more than anyone I know. Or they even during the pandemic, they protected artists. They made sure that they kept salaries to, to be able to make art throughout the entire pandemic so that French people could have that experience. I mean, they really prioritize that. Meanwhile, we do the opposite. We're driving down minimum wage and abusing people on set. And like even extras, even working as an act actor for an extra, you, you don't go anywhere that way. But wouldn't it make sense to bridge between being an extra and having some kind of middle class? Sure. And acting. Absolutely. Go, go sag, right? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, it's these are the kind of conversations that we need to ask because at the end of the day, Jim Morrison said it's like uh, an actor all alone doesn't get anywhere. <laughs> you need to have the listener supporting. And if people would shift their focus towards the art, there would be more opportunities to support the actual art. God bless Jim Morrison. There's nothing that man can't teach us. Um, the last last thing I want to touch upon is what I think scalability is doing for our private interactions. Okay, let's just pretend you're not an artist at all. Let's just pretend you're just a regular guy. Let's just say we go back to the year, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002. And there isn't, there isn't this wide social media and you're just privately having a conversation with that one person. I feel as if like mentally, from just a mental standpoint, when you were walking alone with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you could really speak frankly and you could really express things like, you know, in their purest form. Like you could just say things and, and, and maybe, maybe if there was a third person standing there, they would judge you and be like, Oh, how could you, how could you say right. that? That's not, that's not PC, whatever. Right. But it's just you and some dude talking. I think that to some degree, this surveillance has actually crept into our private conversations. Like I, I almost mm -hmm. feel as if like now when we're talking to somebody alone or an intimate group of people, we're like, oh my goodness, well, this person's gonna run off and tell blah, blah, blah that I said this and that and whatever. And yeah. okay, that, in fairness, that has always been a threat. That's always been a problem. Like if you speak smack about other people, guess what? It's gonna come back totally. and, and kick you in the yeah. butt. Okay, that's just life, right? But I do think that before social media, there was a certain level of frankness that one could speak with, right? That, and it would just never leave that room, right? Like you could just speak a bit frankly, you could say some things that were a little off color or whatever it is, but you were speaking genuinely and from the heart. And I felt there was a certain level of sanctuary, a certain level of security. I now see this kind of, this self-mental surveillance going on in each of our minds, where each of us is becoming increasingly distrustful of the people that we're speaking to. And we're sp starting to regulate our own speech because we have that, that idea of like, well, me telling this one person is equivalent to telling 2 million people what it is that I think. I think that's really dangerous because this is leading to people basically filling up their basket with more pent up emotions that need some kind of valve or some kind of uh, way, of, way, way of releasing. Yeah, it's scary, right? It's scary that, to think that you always feel watched by the hive mind 
you know, the numerical hive mind, just the, the countless swarm of people who will be listening to your opinion and making their own judgments. And then somehow, somehow all of those thoughts from those, all those different individuals homogenize into a single sentiment. It's like, you have to be the last bastion against that somehow, right? Like some kind of tsunami wave of opinion and you're left there by yourself to keep yourself from drowning. It's not fair. It is, it's, it's cancel culture in a nutshell. And this is what scalability has done, right? It's given so much power towards one side and also created an environment where people don't feel responsible to protect where it should be protected, which is the ability to have an opinion and to not be crucified for it. And we're not going to stop in that direction. And this is an aspect of scalability where people feel they have to be a certain way because the rest of the world feels that way. And individualism and art is definitely taking a hit on that, but conversation definitely taking a hit on that. And it's, it's gross. It's gross. It's a huge problem with scalability. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that's going to be answered. I'm not the guy, I'm not smart enough to do that. You know, that sounds like something for Mr. Cladwell to figure <laughs> out himself. And I just buy his New York Times bestseller book when he figures it out. We as humans have to come to the realization that everything we say and everything we do is not scalable. And I think that's the first part of this realization. Um, yeah, again, I'm thinking of like, accounts of the Soviet Union where you had to be really careful. Like people would call Stalin like big whiskers or something. That was like code for speaking smack against Stalin. Like you would just call him big whiskers or something, right? <laughs> and the reason why people would do that oh. is because they were afraid that everything that they said became like a megaphone, right? Everything that they said. And we as a society need to realize that if I am going on TV, if I am releasing a podcast, if I am releasing a YouTube video, that absolutely has the right to be criticized because I am voluntarily making that public, right? I am voluntarily putting out a public persona. However, I don't, I think we have to get to a point where how the, the opinions that people express in private or in close or intimate scale, in, in intimate settings, are not scalable. And it could also be that those people are just testing out new ideas. They may just be talking and it's not something that I'm publicly even sure of. It's not something that I'm publicly willing to post out there. It might, I might even change my mind on that topic the very next day. And I think right. we need to realize that every, the things that we do in private are not scalable and they were not intended to be as such. And therefore we as a society should not be judging it as such. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This concludes the 129th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.